Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. This is a busy, busy season. I'm reminded of that every single day. It seems like every person in my house is experiencing that in their own unique way. For instance, Jake, Josh, and I have had the the mad rush of final assignments and final exams for our various classes. Jenny's contending with an increase of orders from her business, which sounds like a good thing, except that it's coming in during a season when shipping tends to be slow and people are impatient. Every time we go out to Royal Palm or Wellington, We're immediately aware of the increased density of traffic on the roads, the longer lines at the stores, and the sense of tension in the air as everyone seems to be dialed up to their highest gear to get things done. Now, while we all deal with busyness in our own ways, last week I confessed that I manage my busyness with lists. And Christmas is certainly a time for lists, right? We have shopping lists, we have gift lists, we have to-do lists. Some of us have more than one to-do list. We have packing lists. And boy, do we love and hate our lists. And recently, as I was reflecting on this, something struck me about these lists that we make. We could tell a lot about ourselves from these lists, especially perhaps our to-do lists. Are we organized or are we flying by the seat of our pants? Are we thinking ahead or are we thinking from behind? But perhaps the most important thing we can learn about ourselves from our to-do lists are what is it that we prioritize? What is most important to us? You know, not everything makes it onto the list, but the most important things do. The most important things are usually at the top of the list or have stars by them or perhaps they're numbered higher than other things on the list. Some items on the list never get finished, if we're being honest, but the most important things do. As we reflect on the first coming of Jesus together as a church, the incarnation of the Son of God, the arrival of the Messiah, there are two individuals in particular, who we're going to look at today, who knew what was most important, and they organized their to-do lists around it. So if you have your Bibles with you, join with me in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 22. Luke 2, starting in verse 22. And the text says this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. As you might have surmised, our passage takes place after the birth of Jesus. Uh, in fact, Jesus would have been a little more than two months old at this point. So forgive me for jumping ahead in our story. Technically, this isn't a Christmas passage. But I think what, the, what we're talking about today certainly is relevant to Christmas. So as the law prescribed, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to consecrate him to the Lord. And of all the ways that they might have imagined this time at the temple going, they never imagined that they would be accosted by the two individuals mentioned in our text today, Simeon and Anna. And so I want to just remind you of a, for a moment of Simeon. Verse 25 in our text says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. If you were with us last week, you might remember that when the angel Gabriel informed Mary that she would bear a son, there were several significant promises about what that would mean for the nation of Israel. You know, it's easy for us in our context to only associate Jesus with such things as eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when we die. And these are all wonderful things, don't get me wrong. But the truth of the matter is that these were merely the prerequisites to a much greater destiny, a destiny that God had been promising to Israel throughout history and which are a blessing for us as well. So the Messiah, the son of David, we see that it has been promised that he would conquer the enemies of God, that he would sit on David's throne, that he would establish a reign of peace from Jerusalem, and God would be present with the people, and the nations would gather to worship the Lord there. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, and Gabriel informed Mary that all of these things would be fulfilled. They would take place in Jesus. And so what is it that this man Simeon was looking forward to? The consolation of Israel. In other words, everything that Gabriel had told Mary that Jesus would be and would do, this is what Simeon was waiting for. He was waiting for the king to come. And what's more, the Holy Spirit informed Simeon that he would live to see the day when these promises would be fulfilled. That's an amazing thing. 
for a man such as Simeon, because of all the generations of Israel, he would live long enough to see God's promises fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. I want to spend a few more moments reflecting on Simeon together. Here's a quote that I just fell in love with here. It's not a biblical quote. It's human wisdom, but I have to say there's a lot of truth to this. Stephen Covey once wrote this. He says, anything less than a conscious commitment to the important is an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. I want to read that again. Anything less than a conscious commitment to the important is an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. In other words, when something is important, we must be intentional about committing ourselves to that important end. If not, the time we would have spent pursuing the important will end up being squandered on a million unimportant things. And Simeon knew what was important. In fact, he knew the most important thing. He longed for it. He deeply desired it. He hoped in it, and he prepared himself for it. In fact, one might say that he set up his to-do list with this in mind. And God honored his commitment to the most important thing, the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise. We read in our text today from verses 27 onward, it says, Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. I want to draw your attention to something in these verses. Yes, we could certainly think of Simeon's to-do list. And it was that which he was committed to because he knew that it was most important. However, Simeon demonstrates another to-do list in the midst of his prayer. God's to-do list. Now, I'm not so blasphemous as to think that God has to write things down so that he doesn't forget them. Please don't think I'm saying that. However, you'd better believe that God has important ends and that in order to accomplish them, he has been working step by step to bring his purposes to bear. As we consider the coming of Jesus at this appointed time that we read about, this is not an isolated act of God. It is the culmination of God's working out his salvific plan throughout all of history. In fact, the entire Bible is a running commentary on God's work in bringing his purposes to bear. And in fact, what we see in the Bible this only encompasses those things that God revealed that he was doing. Certainly, there are ways in which God was guiding history, which we couldn't even know about. And so Simeon could boldly pray, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. And yet, here's what strikes me. If I'm being honest, here's what stings. What just sits wrong with me. God has always been forthcoming, revealing his plan to his people, promising them this coming redemption. And yet so many people who, like Simeon, should have been waiting in eager anticipation, just were not ready when Jesus came. And that concerns me for two reasons. 
First, of course, I love the Lord, and it pains me to read of him not being received by those that he was sent to deliver. Of course, I read the scriptures, and it hurts. But second, and perhaps even scarier to me, is this. Will we be ready when Jesus comes again? Are we really living like Simeon, who deeply understood what was most important, who lived in eager expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises, and whose to-do list reflected this ultimate priority. Are we really like that? Or is it possible that we would be caught off guard, surprised, not ready, because we have so committed ourselves to less important busyness that has dominated our hearts, that has dominated our minds while the Lord has tarried? As we continue reading in our passage today, we read also about the prophet Anna, who was there at the temple. Verse 36 to 38 says this, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't provide quite as much detail here about Anna as he did with Simeon, but I believe that there are some indicators in the text that show that she, too, was looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, the text says that she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. You know, even the most religious Jews of that day went home at the end of the day. They engaged with others. They had lives. They brought the Lord, his law, and his covenant with them wherever they went. But go, they did. Even if they attended the prayer services twice every single day, it could not have been said of them that they never left the temple but worshipped night and day. But Anna did. Further, Luke informs us that she was fasting and praying. And these things, fasting and praying, at least in the context that we're seeing here, these weren't just things that you did. These were things that you did for a reason. And both her recognition of Jesus and her public proclamation of who he was and what he would do makes me think that she was praying for his coming. And let's be honest, even if she was not praying specifically for the coming of the Messiah, then she was praying for the nation of Israel and the state that it was in and things, things that would have been directly remedied by the coming of the Davidic king, Jesus. So like Simeon, Anna knew what was most important, and her to-do list was aimed directly at it. Friends, I love the Christmas season. I love it as much as the next guy, maybe even a little bit more. I love the Christmas lights, I love the decorations, the music on the radio, the time spent with family, I love it all. I love seeing the church decorated and revisiting the biblical accounts of Jesus' first coming. I really love reflecting on what God, by his grace, has done in sending Jesus to earth 2,000 years ago. But there's something that we need to recognize here. That looking at the Christmas of the past, the first Christmas, ought to have our eyes set on the future. Because there are some problems here that we need to be aware of. There are some things that we might have missed that we, need to, that we need to take stock of. As we've seen the promises that God made to Israel, 
the proclamation that Gabriel the angel made to Mary, the things right here in our text that Simeon and Anna looked forward to, they have not yet arrived. The work has certainly begun, but it isn't finished. Jesus never took the throne of his father David. He did not triumph over the enemies of God. He has not established a reign of peace. The nations do not flock to Jerusalem to honor the Lord. If we're look, using Simeon's language, there has been no consolation of Israel. So did God break his promise? Did God forget? Certainly not. The king is to come again to fulfill these promises. In Christmas, we recognize that he came, but we also need to look forward to the fact that he must come again to make good on these promises. Here's a passage that's often read at Christmas time, but friends, it has very little, if anything, to do with Christmas. It's about that time in the future when Jesus comes again to do what God has always promised that he would do. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The text says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so as our passage here begins a child is born a son is given and that's the extent of the passage that relates to jesus's first coming to christmas but how much more of these two verses that we just read and perhaps you hear read every christmas how much more of this passage relates not to his first coming but to his second coming things such as the government will be on his shoulders well, I, <laughs> look around you, friends. Uh, the government is not on his shoulders. The government will be great and will not end. He will reign on David's throne. David's throne was never over some, you know, mystical, heavenly kingdom, some non-material thing. David's kingdom was Israel. And as we read this text, especially since Isaiah is writing in the time of the Old Testament, there's no reason to expect that it would be anything but what it would have been taken, at, taken as, as he said these things. And so the Messiah, Jesus, he will reign on David's throne. He will reign on David's kingdom, over David's kingdom, Israel. Friends, the great hope of the Christian faith is, is not a happy life now or getting to go to heaven when we die. Those are nice things, but that's, that's not what the ultimate thing is. The great hope of the Christian faith is that God will restore the world to the way that he intended it, the way that it was before the fall. God will no longer be distant, but will dwell with his people in a way not seen since Adam and Eve in the garden. God will reign as king upon the earth, and there will be peace. There won't be nations warring against nations because God will reign here. There will no longer be two conflicting kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, because all will be the kingdom of God. And so I think for us, we need to recognize two things. One, 
This is the most important thing. Just as it was for Mary and Simeon and Anna, this is the most important thing. This ought to be the hope that drives us. This ought to be what we long for, what we deeply anticipate, what we look forward to, and what we organize our to-do list and everything in our lives around. This is the most important thing. And two, we need to be ready. How many people were not ready when Jesus came the first time? We had better be ready when he comes the second time. In fact, Jesus often spoke in terms just like this. In fact, I want to read one passage to you here. It's a parable. Yes, Jesus spoke in parables. Here's one, and I wish we had time to really get into it deeply, but I I want you to listen and catch the gist of it because you cannot miss what Jesus is saying here. This is from Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Jesus says this, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answers, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master put in charge of all his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Again, I wish I had time really to dive into this passage because it is a rich passage. In fact, we did treat this when we went through the book of Luke together. But here's the important thing. Jesus has gone away for a time, but he has promised to come back. And he has given us marching orders. There are things that his people must be about, and they need to eagerly await his return and be ready for him when he comes. And if they are, they will be rewarded as such. But if they're not, there will be punishment. I know that sounds harsh. That's not the Christmas message you were hoping for today. But friends, what an honor it is to be found ready when Jesus returns. We must be ready. We must keep watch. We must be obediently engaged in the things that King Jesus has commanded us to do. And so may we not be like the foolish servant who thought, Well, the master's taking a long time to come back, so 
I'm going to stop keeping watch and do what I want to do. Let us not be that person. Instead, let us be like the good servant who keeps watch, who's ready. And when the master returns, we will receive our reward. Listen, I don't need to be, it doesn't need to be Christmas time for me to have a long to-do list. You could ask my wife or my staff that. I have a long list of things to do 52 weeks out of the year. What we all have to do is this. Align our to-do lists with what is ultimately important. Our to-do lists ought ought to recognize priorities. And our priorities ought to be kingdom business, done in the name of the king, in wholehearted anticipation of his imminent return.